0: Welcome to a brand
1: new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have on Kenan Sheldon. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Missouri. He's also one of the founding researchers of positive psychology, a fellow of the American Psychological Association, and a recipient of the Templeton Foundation Positive Psychology Prize. His research is in the areas of well being, motivation, self determination theory, personality, and positive psychology. And his new book, available now, is called Freely Determined, What the New Psychology of the Self Teaches Us About How to Live. Welcome, Kenan. Thank you for coming on.
2: Looking forward to it.
3: Absolutely. And so as we usually do, we're going to start off with a quote from a book. And in this Mm -hmm. case, it's Ken's new book. So Ken writes, when I was a teenager, my father and I used to argue about the existence of free will. My father, a staunch determinist, was convinced it was a myth. Our behavior might be caused by many factors, he said, genetics, environment, past conditioning, but human striving is not one of them. Not only do our choices not matter, they aren't even choices at all. Our conversations took a similar path each time the subject arose. My father would repeat two simple questions. First, he would ask, are there any uncaused causes? In other words, are there any events that were not themselves caused by prior events? The answer had to be no. I picked up the coffee cup because of an unconscious habit or because of my addiction to caffeine. My sense that I was the one choosing was merely a side effect of those prior causes, just as smoke is only a side effect of fire. For her second question, my father would ask, does the present always follow the past? I would have to agree that it did then he would conclude how could a person's feeling of causing their own behavior in the present be correct the present can only be what the past allows it to be not what i want it to not what we want it to be mm-hmm. my dad's arguments had definite intellectual appeal they seemed to derive from logic and from a scientific worldview that i strongly valued and believed in in science when objective facts contradict your subjective beliefs then you need to change your beliefs no wishful thinking arou- allowed better to be wrong than ignorant still my whole life i have been haunted and hounded by the question of free will does an objective attitude really require us to deny all power to subjective intentions, to the sense that we are all making choices in the world? Or can it be a scientifically legitimate claim to conclude that a carefully thought out personal decision made a large difference in a person's life? So this is the main question, you know, Um, it's kind of interesting too, because when we think of the universe, especially when we think of it from a scientific perspective, we think of it as a kind of like a clock, we think of it in mechanical terms. So it's sort of interesting that when it comes to something like the mind, we all Often think of it in very spooky terms, like the ghost in the machine, or uh, you know, what's the other term? Like the cuss, I think that's how you homunculus. Pro- homunculus. There you go. That's how you pronounce it, right? So it's like, so Ken, in your understanding, right? And let's obviously now get into your system of how this could potentially work. How is it possible that something that on the one hand is mechanistic can also work hand in hand with something that seems, at least to us, you know, subjectively, to appear outside of that system?
2: Yeah. Well, that is really the big question, and that's a hard one to answer, and I don't claim to have answered it. Um, I would start off by saying that uh, the book doesn't really uh, claim to have solved the question of free will versus determinism. Uh, Instead, I'm trying to raise reasonable doubt about determinism, uh, at least uh, at the beginning of the book before getting into some of the psychology, uh, uh, the research that I've done and the psychological questions that the book addresses. And so um, really the way I think about it is that, yes, there's all kinds of mechanisms that are supporting uh, our sense of being selves in the world, making choices. And we certainly can't escape those mechanisms and they have huge impact upon us. And if we start to get Alzheimer's disease or many other pathologies, then our subjective worlds are going to change. They're going to be degraded. But uh, when the human brain is working well, functioning well, um, it's doing something that uh, in my perspective cannot be reduced to pure physics or chemistry. Um, It's uh, it's a very high level brain processes that are involved, these brain networks, uh, when we're making choices and regulating ourselves that are, um, I argue, acting down upon the machinery. So um, we are running our brains just as much as our brains are running us, even though we are, you know, in an important sense, not entirely real, you know, we're just sort of fictional products of our own minds. Mm. But the argument is that these fictional products uh, have legitimate causal effects in the universe. And we can unpack that in all kinds of ways.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting because reductionists seem to uh, see it, you know, from the bottom up, right? But the the way that you sort of argue uh, in the book is that we should actually see it sort of uh, from the higher processes working down uh, because of these uh, uh, causes, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, I I find that uh, very fascinating because uh, I used to find, or I mean, I still to some degree find that reductionist view... Uh, appealing because I, I do like to look at sort of uh the root co- like uh, sort of the point of origination right like uh for for instance okay it, you know our chemicals are running us or the neurological processes going on in our brain right um but what what do you sort of say uh, against that uh
0: yeah
2: yeah um what i would say is that um each new level of organization that evolved within the universe, and you can take it all the way from the, the very beginning of single celled organisms up to multi celled organisms to creatures with nervous systems, and finally you end up with us with these big cerebral cortex, these big brains. Um, each, each one of these uh, evolved because it has the capacity to regulate and control what's going on lower down in the machinery. Mm -hmm. you know so the cell membrane regulates what enters the cell the uh, much higher up the the brain uh, regulates um, the body and then higher than that you've got the mind regulating the brain Mm -hmm. and so so my view is that um, that's really how it works that's how it evolved to work and um, that is how it works unless there is a problem lower down in the machinery You know, so if you've got a brain tumor or some other kind of, you know, pathology, then these higher level systems aren't going to work correctly. And in those cases, our behavior is determined by the lower level factors. Uh, But as long as the lower level factors are working correctly, they're kind of humming along, doing what they're supposed to do to support what's going on higher up, then uh, the higher up processes tend to be in control.
3: Yeah. So why I love that, and also I would sort of have a question about that. So on the one hand, I like the idea that we're distinguishing between, let's say, forms of physical and mental illnesses, well, physical, let's say neurological issues uh, or problems that affect the brain, and then mental illnesses. And then we're saying, well, you know, when this doesn't happen, there aren't sort of these barriers to volition, which I love. I love the concept. But here's the question that I would have. So um, for the most part, no, maybe not for the most part, but there are, so the way mental illness is often now seen, not in every case. So even mental illness, so here, okay, here's what I want to say. So mental illness is now even distinguished. So we have forms of what they would call organic mental illness, something like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, something that's pretty much perceived to be lifelong and sort of inherent more so than not. But then we have other issues which are like let's say personality disorders, you have like borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, uh you know, depression, anxiety, whatever. And so there there's a pretty pretty large subsection of psychiatrists and psychologists who would say these are actually not illnesses per se. These are more like social constructs. So what interests me about that is if we, let's say, subscribe to that view that, okay, well, these are social constructs. You know, you can't, let's say, categorize and lump certain people into these particular categories, even though they'll admit that, again, schizophrenia has its own sort of beast. But with something like a personality disorder, we would say, well, you know, we can't really predict what these people would do. We can't really necessarily lump them into these categories. Yet, however, on the one hand, we can also say, well, the reason why these people do these things is because a borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, whatever, you name it, right? So how could we sort of understand that in terms of this model because where's then the line between okay this is mental illness and it's the mental illness that's causing this to happen meaning it is blocking free will and then to say on the other end like no no this person is perfectly healthy because it seems like when you get into mental health territory it's sort of like again outside of schizophrenia like bipolar it's kind of a crapshoot you'll have people that say well no we should give this person some leeway because they have a personality disorder but then you'll have a large subset of people who will say well personality disorders aren't necessarily real they're social contra- constructs they're Kind of imposed by the structure uh these people can act differently these people can do things that are good for the broader society and for good for themselves you know etc so it seems like such murky waters to kind of make that distinction like what do you what would you say what would you say or what do you think about that
2: yeah uh that's a really good question and it's true that um the boundary between organically based disorders and what i would call more functionally based uh, disorders is pretty shady uh sometimes um, but I still think that given an organically functioning brain, uh, we're responsible for what we do. Now, the problem is, um, you know, I wouldn't agree that uh, borderline personality is a social construct. Um, I, I do think it's, um, a, 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 a mode of brain functioning that the person has evolved, which does not work very well for them and that they're kind of trapped in, you know? And so you could say, oh, do they have free will if they have, you know, these, these, this this borderline disorder that is constantly sending them off in these emotional uh, tangents that disrupt their functioning. And I would I would say yes, they do. Uh, we're always making choices. Uh, the problem is is that um, we are prone to making bad choices. And so one reason you might make a bad choice is because you have these unresolved issues that have led to this maladaptive personality structure that, uh, you know, causes problems for you. But um, people do uh, cope with these problems. And, you know, they decide to enter therapy, they decide to work really hard on, you know, becoming aware of their issues and and dealing better with them. And that choice to do that uh, can make a, a large difference in their lives. And it can even Send them on the way to um, changing that personality disorder into a more uh, normal way of being. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's 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 pretty much my perspective on it.
3: So, just to, I'm sorry, just to be clear, right? So, I think what I hear you saying is essentially that normal behavior, what I guess society in this case would define as normal behavior, that entails free will. But when it's something like a personality disorder, that you would see as a little bit more determined, organically, you know, environmentally, whatnot.
2: Yeah, I would say that uh, that uh, the organic or uh, learning-based causes of behavior are stronger and harder to change. In that case, mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that we don't have the capacity to to change them, uh, given a you know a firm intention and firm desire to do so.
1: Interesting. So that's actually making me thinking. I think to rather ask a question. Um, uh, what would the difference be then between maybe like something like soft determinism and hard determinism? Because right. what we're talking about now, uh, it's making me think of like maybe soft determinism, right? Yeah. 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 That's a, Yeah. Right. Yeah. That it's not exactly concrete. Right. Yeah.
2: Well, maybe you should uh, define soft and hard determinism for the listeners and, and for me also, because I'm not quite sure what you're saying with that. Fair, fair enough uh, yeah we, so, we about a little bit, right? yeah so okay. Ken
3: uh the way that we would kind of view soft I this is obviously I mean you might have a different definition of it so the way that some people would view soft- determinism as opposed to hard so hard is pretty much a predetermined mechanical universe in the sense of like there's this beginning let's say the big Bang and then from the big Bang if you kind of knew all of the factors everything would be predictable so there's no room for, for change or you know randomness right essentially uh but the way that let's say academics would define soft determinism is essentially there is randomness in the system so meaning that like things happen without specific not without specific causes but without specific uh without the ability to predict them but even still they have effects so random events have effects but yet sometimes they obviously most of the time they can't be predicted that's kind of the inherent term randomness um so the idea is with the uh, hard determinism it's everything is mechanistic from the beginning of time whereas soft determinism still allows for some randomness
2: yeah well the word randomness can be a little problematic and i wouldn't agree that our only possible source of free will comes from random processes. I would say it comes from intentional processes mm-hmm. um, and that those are non-random there. When we set an intention, we are uh, trying to make things happen that we think will be good for us as best we can uh, detect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I think you got to have a place in the system for um, these high level brain network processes that are trying to uh, that are actually in charge of evolved to be in charge of the behavioral machinery uh, t- you know to a, to a greater or lesser extent and ideally we can uh, make it make it a greater extent that we can become uh, more and more in charge and and more and more making choices that are actually good for us as a function of our own efforts and uh, learning and growth right. Hmm. Another way to say that is uh, in philosophy, you know, these schools of thought on determinism versus free will, uh, the, the most popular one is called compatibilism, right. which yep. says that um, a determinism and free will are compatible. And that's really what I'm saying. I'm saying that there is a a, a lot of determinism down in the machinery. You know, there's no choices being made in my, my cellular membranes or in my, you know, my... Um, my my um uh, sweat glands but higher up there are choices being made by a mind which is asking itself what it wants and then that mysteriously causes our lower minds to provide ourselves with possibilities and then the executive systems are come back into play and they say which one do i want and -hmm. they make a choice and they go after it and um You know, once again, they might not make good choices. And so, from my point of view, the real question isn't do we have free will it's can we make can we use our free will to make choices that will promote our our happiness and well being.
3: Right. Mm -hmm. I love that. And so uh, there was an example that came to mind, and uh, this is what I want to talk about next. So you mentioned an example of somebody essentially priming themselves. So this now let's go into the Benjamin Libet experiments. So Mm -hmm. your interpretation of Libet is essentially fundamentally different, I would say, than kind of how the majority of, let's say, neuroscientists would probably interpret it. So your understanding of it is not so much that everything is predetermined, it's sort of, again, this compatibilism, that it kind of works together, that from my understanding, I don't think you're denying the Libet experiments, but you're saying essentially that there's a priming that happens before people make the decisions. So can you talk a little bit about that, your understanding of it?
2: Yeah, right. So um, the Libet experiments showed that uh, when people are asked to press a button when they decide to do something, and the uh, experiments show that there's brain processes that begin a uh, half a second before they put push the button that says, okay, I just decided. And so that seems to say that the um, experience of deciding Only came later. It was only an epiphenomenon, like the fire is on. uh, The smoke is only an epiphenomenon of the fire. It doesn't cause the fire. It's a a side effect of the fire. Um, And I, that is a a very interesting and intriguing finding. But um, from my point of view, the decision to press the button at time T at this precise moment is something that we have off sourced. Uh, we, we listened to the instructions of the experiment. We said, okay, I got to pick a moment. All right, I don't know which moment I'm going to pick. And, and but, but we kind of ask our brains to tell us to do that for us. And mm-hmm. then it, the brain says, okay, what about now? We say, sure, I'm picking now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, maybe um, you could say the brain determined the precise moment, but we, with our, our conscious intentions, set the brain to work to make that determination. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's pretty important to keep in mind.
3: Right. And it's sort of that interplay, again, between the chemical, biological, and also, you know, I guess what you would call mind or whatever that is. So it's kind of interesting. And I love that about your system. So it's not kind of, it is super interesting. I love that a lot about your system that essentially you don't deny that there are these neurological and chemical processes, but what you're essentially saying is that we don't really know how yet they interact with one another. And it's not really, it's not, it doesn't really make much sense with the evidence to deny free will just based on the fact that fundamentally there are these other processes going on beneath the surface
1: yeah for sure i mean um i for example I, i've talked about this before on the show uh, at one point in my life I, I used to weigh around maybe 300 pounds and so i really wanted to you know uh change some habits right change what i ate uh, go to the gym more and and things of that nature and of course uh, the processes going on in my body wanted more of the same right i wanted more of the same food that i was accustomed to. I wanted to not go to uh, basically have what's familiar, uh, not necessarily expend that much energy, Uh, save time and energy just by default, right? But uh, there was something else that sort of uh, came into play. I would argue maybe that that free will, essentially, that I I try to, as as best as I possibly could, uh, take action and essentially uh, move past, like what my body is naturally telling me to do. Right. And I, and I feel like I was less being determined by that. There was, there was, yeah. Ah, uh, uh, can I add on to that?
3: Sure. Please. So I actually, now I have a, a question for Ken based on av- what you just said, right? Okay. So there's, I think a distinction between what you're saying and yeah. you're saying, okay, let's conceptualize this as free will, right?
1: Okay. And that's obvious. Like, that's what I hear you saying, right? Uh, es- essentially. Yes. I'll just ta- add something here. The idea is that, uh, I mean my my body was so used to certain kinds of food a certain amount of sugar a certain amount of carbs like there's even you know if uh, if you're into food science or nutrition uh, for example if if you eat a lot of carbs uh, there's a, a candida uh, that's in in the in the yeast mm-hmm. uh, that essentially wants more candida right, right, right. right? and it, and it makes you crave these foods yes, right yes, and and essentially i mean not essentially but you you may be sort of in a way determined to you know get more of that right. right so this is what i would want to add and this
3: is the question that i would ask uh canon so here's my thinking right can that also be sub- the uh sort of super superimposed to a deterministic model because here's what i also mean by that right so can the way you present the and this is not just you i don't i don't mean necessarily to call you out here uh, the way that the result or the, the research is presented is that okay on the one hand people who subscribe to a deterministic model usually sort of have lower mental health uh they don't really feel like they're in control of their lives they're autonomous etc and then people who feel like they have free will, they're, you know, causal agents. Essentially, they feel like they have the ability to get better, like Alan, let's say, to lose weight, et cetera, right? So I wonder if it's actually not that simple. And here's what I mean by that. So I wonder if you can actually take a deterministic model and say, well, it's not either good or bad, that essentially we all have it in us to self-actualize, right? So on the one hand, there's, and I'm going to just, for simplicity, I'm going to, let's say, use Freud's kind of conception of like the death instinct. We have like this drive to, you know, like do sort of the lazy part, right? The sort of aspect of our lives that says, no, do what's familiar, you know, do what's, uh, you know, not necessarily good for your body, don't do the work, etc. I'll just say it's the death instinct, whatever, you know, the, the kind of uh, chaotic part of us, right. And then you sort of have the, you know, arrows, right, like the life drive that says, like, no, I want to go to the gym, I want sure. to get better, right. And so what I would wonder is, isn't it possible also that there are these external factors that could potentially influence that? So let's say somebody like Alan, right. So we would say, okay, Alan, on the one hand had, you know, this sort of instinct to kind of, again, be lazy, Uh there's bodies like, no, you know consume the amount of calories that you're used to etc and then there was this other instinct that said like dude man you got to do something about this your health is, is deteriorating you're not eating well you know life isn't going so well whatever right and let's say something happened externally maybe that he wasn't even conscious of that somehow primed him to say you know what I have to do something else. You know, maybe it's not go to the gym every single day. Maybe it's go to the gym today, right? Maybe it's go for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, etc. And then he did that. And then he was like, Oh, it's not so bad. And then, you know, he was reinforced. And then essentially the next day he was like, Oh, okay, great. Now I could do this again. And then maybe some other external factor happened. Like, let's say, I don't know, he uh lost some weight and started feeling better. So now he's like, Oh, wow, oh my God, this is great. I didn't know I could feel this good. More reinforcement, right? So I'm wondering why do we have to conceptualize that as free will? And why isn't it that we can't just superimpose a deterministic model? exactly what you said why can't we say that you know the version of determinism in these studies is maybe a bastardization of it where essentially to say that determinism is always negative like oh man i have no control i I don't think that that's determinism i think maybe the illusion of control is a part of determinism too
2: Mm -hmm. what do you think um okay so that's a lot of ideas to uh, (laughs) to deal with um my position is is that um we're continually arri- arriving at moments of choice where we decide what we want. And it could be that we uh, could keep making that choice. I don't want to do anything. I'm lazy. It's too hard. I don't feel like it. And that's fine. But then we'll, we'll pay the price for that. And, uh, you know, maybe our health continues to decline and that's not so great until finally we get to the point where that moment of choice arrives and we say, no, today I'm going to do something. And then we do it. Mm-hmm. And if there could well be an external prime to that. You know, we see a TV show about somebody who changed, turned their life around and lost 300 pounds. And Chris might say, yes, I can do that. Um, but that doesn't mean that his choice is determined by that. That's simply an influence on his choice that on that particular day, um, it uh, helped him take the leap towards the becoming the healthier self that he wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um there was something else I was going to say about that, but uh... yeah, so reinforcement. Um, one of the the behaviorist argument against free will is that we're only doing what we've been reinforced to do. So if you're being reinforced for your new lifestyle of eating better and going to the gym, does that mean you're determined after all? And I would say no, it's unreasonable to expect that we would... Um, want to do things that weren't reinforcing you know there's of course that's going to be important information that supports our decisions especially the healthy ones Mm. and we start to feel better and that feels better and so we do more of it and we keep doing more of it so um, there's all these cusps these choices that come and then there's consequences and if we're making the right choices and the consequences are good ones and they're going to reinforce those choices and we can get onto what is called in positive psychology an upward spiral.
0: Mm-hmm. You
2: know, that's sort of the holy grail in positive psychology is mm-hmm. taking people's self-organizational capacities, or them taking them in their own hands, and uh, beginning to make sustainable positive changes that take them in a completely new direction, as in the uh, the, the, the weight loss uh, example that we've been talking about.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. So Hmm. what I just to be clear, right. So what I hear you saying is that even though there are these competing drives, right, let's hypothetically call them drives. So they are these competing drives. And even though, yes, they could increase and decrease with influence, you're still saying fundamentally, even though even though let's say maybe one drive decreased or maybe one increased and you know let's say it's sort of um it kind of let's say uh let's say the other one kind of stagnated in some way and then this one increased like the one for sort of more positivity health etc you're still saying fundamentally it's ultimately the person who's making the choice that even the drives as intense as they can be and as tempting as they can be as long as a person has a kind of healthy stable mind it's them who's ultimately making the decision what to do with that instinct
2: yeah that's what i believe, and. Mm-hmm. um, Yep, I mean that's it. That that's what I believe. Yeah.
1: Okay, I hear you. Uh, I'm I'm curious. Why does somebody uh, like a figure like Sam Harris so fervently believe in uh, in determinism? Like he thinks there's no free will at all. Yeah. And and people find him so appealing that they just kind of subscribe to it. I find them appealing as well. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Um, Well, first of all, I would ask how he knows if he why does he think this? It can't be because he's reasoned correctly about the truth because nobody can reason correctly. All they can do is think what they're determined to think. So that's one question I would ask. Hmm. There's another section of the book where I evaluate the motivation of determinists. And I ask, well, why do they want to believe this? And one reason might be that they they really believe in science and they think that in order to be a a real scientist, you have to believe in determinism. You know, I would disagree with that. I think I'm a real scientist. Uh, Another reason is that you feel like you're smart if you believe in determinism. You haven't fallen prey to this illusion that so many people fall prey to. Or another reason is that uh, believing in determinism gets you off the hook of responsibility. Uh, It wasn't your fault that uh, that comes to mind a prominent evolutionary psychologist who, a male who got into trouble for sleeping with his female graduate students uh, determinist, he could say, well, I couldn't help that. That's what males evolved to do. Mm-hmm. And I would say, well, you know, you could help that you could have decided not to, like many people do. And mm. maybe you will come around to that eventually, once you start to pay the price for making these choices that uh, society doesn't approve.
3: Mm. You know what's so interesting about that? So uh, diagnostically, I have something called, unfortunately, I guess, or maybe fortunately, I have something called OCPD, which is obsessive compulsive personality disorder. So for me, I'm like obsessed with rigid rules. And so I guess what's in some ways cool about that is that when I do something, and here's the thing, I don't necessarily subscribe to social norms, which gets me into trouble. So I'm not necessarily saying like, hey, I'm this really great person. Uh, not necessarily, so it's not actually that. But when it comes to my own sort of rules, because I feel such intense guilt, it's so here's, here's kind of the way I conceptualize, morality. So I don't necessarily think morality is true, like in an objective sense, right? So I don't necessarily think that there's something outside of us that's telling us, okay, you can't do this thing. But here's my thinking with determinism. Yes, on the one hand, you're right, you can definitely use that as an excuse. But on the other hand, and this is just my conception of it and my perspective. So because I have like such a kind of obsession and rigidity with rules, my thinking is even when I bend them a little bit, I feel intense guilt for doing so. Is it because I agree that the rules are objective? No, I don't. I don't think like, oh, if you tell Me, like, you know, don't like, let's say, you know, don't hurt Alan right now, right? I mean, is there, I, I, so here's why I wouldn't do it, right? So, number one, the rule not to do that is really important to me. And then also the empathy that I would feel for him for having hurt him in some way, that would hurt my feelings. So, I wouldn't necessarily say, okay, objectively, there's a, a kind of rule that's making me do that. So, I'm not necessarily, again, subscribing to some sort of version of morality that exists outside of my brain. But I'm also thinking, again, it feels like there's just no other kind of like, for me at least, again, and this is just, just to be clear, this is just this particular diagram diagnosis i'm not saying it's like this for everybody but with this particular diagnosis and this mental structure it feels when i do the wrong thing it's so intensely terrible for me and the like fucking guilt that i feel for it most of the time again it doesn't even have to be uh somebody else's rules it could just be my own that it just doesn't feel like i could have acted otherwise
2: yeah mm. well do you ever act otherwise i guess you do and you feel guilt as a result but yeah then, then do you ever um do it again because you realize, well, maybe that rule isn't one that I really need to follow. I I didn't follow it and things turned out well this time. Uh, Maybe I can start to get over that um, compulsion
3: oh so here's the thing it actually doesn't matter the way things turn out so this is what my brain would do so let's say i like i heard alan right let's say I, you know maybe even accidentally so i heard him and then he's like no 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 that's fine like i wasn't even that bad right the way i would conceptualize it i would be like oh alan's just being nice to me it actually did hurt him so now i have to find a way to make up for it and then like i would still find a way to feel guilty about it so again it feels like it's it's compulsive i mean that's kind of the personality I mean, structure uh,
1: so yeah what's interesting is i feel like the key word there is structure right yeah so anytime Time you act outside of that structure it feels uncomfortable right no not even that, just it's painful it's almost painful so then what would happen if you just kept deviating from that structure wouldn't it eventually become you would think you would think it hasn't worked it really hasn't worked.
3: So every time I do it, it's sort of... So it's not OCD where you're like doing rituals. I mean, thank God. I, I, I'm i really happy I don't have that version of it. Uh, so it's not like that, but it's sort of similar where if you go outside of the structure,
1: it's so fucking painful. And it, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's possible, but I, it hasn't worked for me. What if you labeled that structure as... I don't know. Like, what if you identified it as something that is not helpful to you? I mean, I think that's putting it in kind terms, but yeah. I, I've I've done this before where I've had a certain... uh structure maybe maybe socially in terms of interacting with other people mm-hmm. that I kind of demonized in a sense. I would be like okay this is like this is the ego. Yeah. This is wrong. I'm identifying right now with uh th- this belief that's no longer serving me and this is going to be horrible for my life and I really really hammer in how bad it is so- this way what of uh, uh, the other thing that I do, uh, there's like a sort of a seesaw, like, I, I, I sorry, you, you know how, like, we're always motivated to go towards what uh, gives us pleasure and right. move away from things that give us pain. Mm-hmm. I just define that structure or that belief or that pattern as extremely painful, at least to the best of my conscious ability. Right. And then that's how I kind of kill that. I hear you. Yeah. yeah so I don't know. I, I would answer that you somebody would need to
3: give me a really great argument for why my rule system doesn't work or why it's not good for me. Just, I haven't it heard be, it yet. It might be you who has to. Maybe. Or maybe. Maybe,
1: maybe yeah. something.
2: I haven't been
3: able maybe, to come up with it. So
2: Yeah. Well, so when you follow these rules that you feel you have to because it's painful not to, do you feel a sense of doing it autonomously or do you feel like you're being forced to by forces you can't control?
3: Yeah. So that's a great question. Yeah. So it feels more internal, but not in the sense of autonomous. So it doesn't feel like I have volition over it. It Again, it feels inevitable because maybe not inevitable is the right term, but it feels inevitable in the long run. So what I mean by that is if I deviate from the rules, eventually I'm going to find my way back because it's going to be too painful to go away from them.
2: Yeah. Well, Hmm. I would suggest that um, your way of living is working for you and you're pretty high functioning, seem to be very articulate, no stuff. Um, so I'm not sure that there's a big problem there. And if there was, I think you could um, change that around a bit with some effort. And But right now, maybe you don't really want to. I also wanted to um, say this maybe could be a segue into self-determination theory, which is behind a lot of the book, uh, and which grounds a lot of my research. And um, SDT, self-determination theory, um, distinguishes between different reasons that we do things. And some of those are autonomous reasons, and some of those are called controlled reasons. And so, in an autonomous reasons, when you do something because uh, it's intrinsically motivating, it's enjoyable, it gives you flow states, or uh, maybe it's not enjoyable, but it's meaningful and valuable and important. So you'll you'll take out the trash, you'll pay the taxes, because you believe in cleanliness, you believe in supporting you know, the, the government or following the laws. So those are the autonomous motivations. And then the controlled motivations are uh, you feel like you don't have any choice, you have to do it. That's mm-hmm. external motivation. <clears throat> and then there's introjected motivation, which is guilt-based, which is you're pressuring yourself into it because you won't feel good about yourself if you don't do it. Right. And so your motivation sounds like, to follow these rules, sounds like introjected motivation. You're kind of guilting yourself into it because that's what you're supposed to do. And you're forcing yourself to do things that you wouldn't do otherwise. And from the perspective of SDT, uh, introjected motivation is not a great one to have because you haven't fully internalized doing it. There's some internal resistance. So part of you says, I, you know, I'm doing it, I'm going to do it. But another part of you says, I don't really want to do it. I'm only doing it because I have to, or I'm making myself. And so from the point of view of SDT, you might be happier and mentally healthier if you could transmute that interjected motivation into an identified motivation. If you made it fully autonomous when you follow the rules, you have agreed uh, through your entire being that these rules you're following are they make sense that you agree, you agree with them and you want to do them and it sounds like you're not there yet with the rules you feel you're doing them out of compulsions and again from the sdt perspective uh, it would be better for your mental health if you could fully internalize rather than only have half internalized those those behaviors
0: mm-hmm.
1: Interesting, yeah, um, yeah. I recall reading from uh, from the book. Uh, there's an example of uh, if somebody, let's say, their mother gets sick, right? Uh, at first, um, you know, y- you you have to take care of her, and uh, maybe maybe you don't necessarily want to, but out of duty, you you do it, and that may be interjected sort of motivation. Yes, but yes. then that may actually transform into identified motivation. Uh, because there comes a point where you're like, okay, wait that's that's my mother. that's the person who raised me. I don't want her to die. I want to make sure that she's okay. nothing bad happens to her, and then these uh sort of conflicting feelings don't necessarily come into play when you're uh identified uh so to speak mm-hmm.
0: yeah. yeah
2: that's that's correct um One study that I talk about in the book was a study that I conducted with um, people who were trying to hike the entire Pacific Crest Trail in a single spring and summer. So the PCT is a 2,300 mile trail that takes several months to hike and there's a lot of struggle and hardship involved. So I assessed the motivations of these folks before they started. And then I assessed it again at the end after they had finished their trip, whether they actually completed the whole trail or they dropped out along the way. Mm -hmm. And what I found was that um, having strong interjected motivation, this sort of internal self-pressure, predicted finishing the trail. But having identified motivation also predicted finishing the trail and it predicted being happier as a result after mm-hmm. the journey was over mm-hmm. whereas the interjected motivation it predicted finishing but it didn't make leave the person any happier it left mm-hmm. them with a sense of relief like thank god that's over i did it mm-hmm. but it wasn't as fulfilling as if they could uh, kind of get themselves all the way behind it and find intrinsic meaning and value in doing it
3: mm-hmm. So ultimately, I assume if let's say we were going to go from one to the other, obviously, because we started talking about it in terms of my uh, diagnostic picture. So if I were to somehow take the rules and make them somehow uh, like, let's say, a deeper or a more kind of intrinsic, I guess, you know for lack of a better term, part of me, how would I guess, how could I go do that? So would it be sort of looking at the arguments for and against those rules, whether they're helpful, not helpful, who do they serve, et cetera?
2: That would help. That would mm. It would be beneficial to lay them out, make, put them in front of you think about them consciously and make a decision one way or the other. That's one that I'm going to keep subscribing to. That's one I'm going to try to get over. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And uh, I think that decision would start a process of internalization. And according to SDT, the internalization process is something that's inherent to human nature, that we have a desire and an ability to take what was formerly externally or interjected and turn it into identified and sometimes intrinsic and you can see this where um, a kid might start out cleaning their room only because their parents make them you know they're immature they're 12 they don't have a, a mature prefrontal cortex but mm-hmm. then by the time they're a young adult um, they can clean their room or keep their house clean because they think that's important and valuable and they know where their stuff is and the it's an ordered environment and they like it that way.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So um, we have this tendency uh, to, we don't like control, feeling controlled. We want to turn our controlled motivations into autonomous ones. And this fits with a, the, one of the main assumptions of SDT, that we have a need for autonomy, that human beings have evolved and a, a need for autonomy, uh, which is the, uh, the feeling that we are causing our own behavior. Mm -hmm. So you see the the kind of connection to the free will debate. I'm I'm taking SDT further than it kind of has before because DC and Ryan don't usually address the free will question, but I I went ahead and took that next step and I said, uh, we're always making the choices, but we may not recognize it or feel free in doing so. And in that case, uh, it's going to be better for us if we can uh, jumpstart that internalization process and complete um, the, the 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 process of turning our controlled motivations into autonomous ones.
3: Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like Spider-Man where essentially in the beginning, right? So you remember when he, when uh, uncle Ben dies and he's like, oh, I don't want to do this shit. This sucks. Like, why do I have to be the one? And then eventually he kind of grows into the role where he, you know, he's like, this is it. Nobody else can do it. And I guess I have to, and then, well, I have to, and then I sort of get joy from it
1: yeah with yeah. with great power comes great responsibility yeah, I'm just so, so surprised you <laughs> use the spider-man
3: you know you got that from there was this really great book by a therapist named Meg Jay called Supernormal and it was about essentially how you can turn trauma into you know triumph for lack of a better term as corny as that my town. uh and then yeah so she used the spider-man example where it's like initially you know you take something traumatic like let's say you know his uncle in that case passing away and then you're turning it into something that's great which is you know now you're a superhero yeah
2: mm-hmm.
3: interesting yeah <laughs> Yeah. So, and yeah. And then, so the next thing I would want to focus on, and this is what I really love. So you had this really great example of sports contracts. So obviously I'm a sports junkie. I mean, I love football, You know, lots of games on today. Uh, So I love the, I love your idea about uh, sort of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation in the context of sports contracts. So we often obviously think that the player only really cares about money and, you know, when the contract is up or about to be up, that's when they really start putting in the effort. And sort of, this is the cliche that essentially, once they get the contract, now they all of a and kind of suck again you know or at least suck maybe not again maybe they were always putting in the effort but your research actually showed something a little bit different and it's something that seemed at least counterintuitive can you talk about that
2: yeah yeah um I'm a little bit of a sports junkie too and so I've always been interested in this contract year effect um which says that players will do better in their, their contract year and then they'll go back to where they were before afterwards Mm -hmm. And uh, that that hadn't really been looked at as carefully as I think it could have been. So we collected data from 20 years of um, NBA and Major League Baseball player performance. And we identified three-year periods, the year before the contract, the contract year, and the year after. And we predicted and found uh, this pattern, which was especially for offensive statistics, you know, um, scoring in basketball, um, batting average in baseball, especially for offensive statistics, yes, they did better in their contract year, but then they didn't just go down to the the year one level in the third year, they went below that level. And we predicted that because we thought that the contract year would be very undermining of their intrinsic motivation.
0: Mm -hmm. So
2: SDT is built on this undermining effect that Intrinsic motivation is powerful, it gets us a lot of great places, but it's also fragile and it can be undermined when we think too much about the external rewards that are involved with the activity. Mm -hmm. So these athletes, the reason they got so good, a big part of it was that they started out with incredibly strong intrinsic motivation. They played all the time, they practiced, it was fascinating, challenging, they got really good and then they started to make the big bucks And that Mm -hmm. is kind of a threat to the intrinsic motivation. But the big threat is when that contract year comes around and that's all they think about for the whole year. And uh, our uh, data suggests that that was too big of a threat for many of them to to handle. And whatever intrinsic motivation they had left at that point, it was reduced even further by that third year. And they um, weren't doing even as well as they had done in the first year as a result of that undermining process hmm
3: yeah alan was it in terms of like your own weight loss right so if there was i mean obviously i don't want to kind of assume anything here but do you feel like in terms of going to the gym and whatnot and the way you kind of work out exercise you know take care of yourself now would you say it's more extrinsic where you're mostly focused on the rewards or is it that now you just love doing it for its own sake
1: oh i just love doing it for its own sake mm-hmm. uh, it feels like therapy too mm-hmm. like uh uh, when I first started doing it, what actually motivated me to keep going was, um, I, I used to be, inc- I mean, I may still be to some degree, uh, whatever, but I used to be incredibly neurotic, think all the time, uh, beyond just ruminating thoughts. Just it, it, this wasn't critical thinking. This was not brainstorming. This mm-hmm. was just, whoa, just a lot of thinking. But, uh, when I would go to the gym, let's say do some cardio, uh, maybe listen to something while I ran, mm-hmm. uh, I would work out problems in my mind as i'm running like maybe there I, I kind of have a my own version of a music video that i would just visually imagine as i'm running and then uh, think about these problems i have in my life and then sort of work them out in a weird way mm-hmm. uh lo- this is a lot of detail going there but to make to give you the short answer i just now just love doing it it's not just oh i have to do this yeah and, and i'm assuming if you and if you thought you had to do it would you still do it Oh, sorry, I should add this a little caveat. Yeah. So yeah, there are days, of course, where I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And then I feel good for getting past that, that sort of obstacle of not wanting to do it. Mm-hmm. So you could argue, yeah, it's not, inc- it's not 100%, 100% yeah. uh, intrinsic sometimes, but yeah, yeah. for the most part, yeah.
2: I mean, I think that it's great that you have gone beyond Identified motivation, which is doing it because it's important, you know, it'll make you uh, healthy. To actually finding intrinsic joy in the process itself, yeah. not everybody gets that far. Uh, it's possible to do your workout um, just because you know you have said you would. That's that's the commitment you made yourself, and you're going to go whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but ideally, you'll get to the point where you find intrinsic rewards in it so that the activity is self-reinforcing and you don't have to push through uh, as much resistance anymore. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And I love the example that you also gave about scholarships. Another thing that sort of, again, seems so counterintuitive, where essentially when you look at two different sets of athletes, like walk-on athletes, people who essentially were just, you know, they tried out and they made the team as opposed to people who were offered scholarships. If somewhere down the road, you did some sort of survey or you essentially, you know, gave them a questionnaire and you asked like, Hey, how interested in the sport are you now? A lot of the people who had scholarships would say, yeah, we don't really care about it anymore, which again, intuitively doesn't make any sense because how is that possible? If you were so dedicated to it that you able to get a scholarship for it Then now this person on the other hand was just some walk-on and just like oh cool this seems nice i want to try it um how is it possible that this person actually enjoys it more so than the former so it's interesting how that happens but yeah but in your understanding your argument is essentially because of intrinsic motivation
2: yeah the uh the walk-ons they didn't have anything to support them doing it they weren't getting you know any uh, classes tuition paid for so they had strong intrinsic motivation at the beginning presumably these uh, scholarship athletes did as well because they had to have in order to have gotten that good at the sport but then they went through four years of this intense pressure where they're getting yelled at by the coach and they're always worried about what the fans are saying about them and and uh, that pressure is very undermining and when they could finally stop doing it you know they didn't make the pros um, and the pressure was off and they just didn't want to keep doing it anymore, whereas the, the uh, walk-ons uh, never had that pressure and they could keep uh, being interested in this sport that they always were interested in.
3: Wow. Yeah. And that makes me think of uh, something a little bit more personal where I, so I constantly get into arguments with my mom about this, where, so like when I was a kid, I was even still now to a big degree. So I was like incredibly difficult. And so uh, my mom essentially never really pushed me to do anything, whether sports activities, like, I don't know, just anything that you could think of anything, extracurricular, extracurricular uh, school-wise, she never pushed me into going. And so my argument was like, no, you know, you're the parent, you're supposed to force me. And my mom was like, always trying to tell me, she says, you don't understand how difficult you are. Like There's no forcing you. You couldn't do anything. So essentially, on the one hand, like, there's nothing that you could do as a parent. She's like, I'm telling you, you're, you're that bad. It was that hard with you. And so in my mind, I'm like, but no, you're the parent. You're supposed to do this. I'm like, you're supposed to get the kid extracurriculars. You're supposed to get them into a good college, etc. Like This is your job as a parent. But now reading your work on self-determination, I think what you're, maybe I'm wrong, but I think what you're implying is that for good parenting, a lot of parents should actually kind of more so back off and let their kids figure out what works for them rather than pushing them. Is that, is that on that is
2: that is exactly correct you know the the parent can say okay you uh you seem to like the piano you're picking out some tunes on your own let's get you some lessons now i'm spending money on your lessons and you by god you're going to practice you know and that happens to a lot of kids and um as soon as they get the chance they're done you know they move out of the house forget that Mm -hmm. um whereas um the better way to parent is to say oh here's something you could do let's try it and What you hope is that the kid finds their own rewards in doing it and -hmm. they're more likely to do that if the parents not putting a bunch of pressure on them and saying you know this is costing us money Um, so uh, an important concept in sdt is autonomy support Mm -hmm. it's how authorities should treat subordinates whether that's parents and children coaches and athletes employers and employees that they should give the um, uh, the subordinate as much freedom as possible to make their own choices and when they do that then they help the subordinate to internalize doing the thing for their own reasons and they help the subordinate to find uh, pleasure and joy in doing it um, f- for their own reasons and so being a controlling parent backfires a lot of times and, and And being a controlling employer, controlling anything, it's one of the main messages of SDT, this paradox that if, you know, if you want somebody to do something, uh, if you push too hard, it's not going to work. You have the power and you can make their lives miserable for a while if they don't do what you say. But ultimately, it's not going to work because you will have turned them off to doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, so thinking about this
3: clinically, and just to be clear, I'm not uh, implying that you're essentially saying that, you know, you're a clinician, you're a therapist, you are essentially saying that this applies to uh, clinical therapy, but I'm just curious what your thoughts would be. So if we were to apply some sort of model to this, would you say that it's similar to the Rogerian model, where essentially the idea is, you know, in terms of like, if you give the person enough positive regard, they'll kind of, they'll uh, sort of flower and bloom on their own, right? Again, I'm not, I'm not saying that you're subscribing to a particular therapy model, I'm not, you know, putting words into your, mouth. But what I'm hearing is from what you're saying is that that Rogerian model could be effective in the sense of, again, like a good parent, you're giving the person the space to
0: grow.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I I have a lot of um, admiration for the Rogerian model. Uh, I've written chapters comparing the Rogerian model to the SDT approach. Oh, interesting. And so they're, they're very similar. And they're also both similar to what's the motivational interviewing approach, which you may be familiar with. It's used a lot in contemporary therapy. And uh, the point of motivational interviewing is to help the person find their own reasons for doing what it is. So the therapist kind of has the power, they're the authority, but they try very hard not to tell the person what to do, not to give prescriptions or commands. uh, They're just trying to create a context in which the person can find their own reasons to do it. So motivational interviewing is about helping the person build their own self-determined motivation.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, which again seems super counterintuitive because we always try to control. So especially if you see somebody in distress, like in a you know therapy room, you're like, oh my god, no! Here are the things that you have to do to make your life better. Like Alan, go to the gym and you know do whatever, right? And the other person's
1: like, no, nah, I don't want to do it. So yeah. I have a question: um, what, what kind of questions might be asked in motivational interviewing? Mm-hmm. Well, I, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I would I, ask. Uh, apologies. Apologies. Yeah, yeah. I go. So, so how, how does that work exactly? Like, um, are you are you asking them essentially what motivates you to do what you do, or are you suggesting yeah. something that they are already doing? And yeah, or, or it would be questions
2: do? like, um, okay, well, let's, let's revisit why you're here. Remember, you brought yourself here, so there must be something that you're looking for. Um, I I'm not going to try to tell you what that is, but I'm going to try to help you figure out what it is. And uh, I remember something you said a couple of weeks ago that suggested this might be the reason. Let's take a look at that. You know, Hmm. so it's, it's, I don't, I'm not a therapist and I don't do therapy. Uh, Actually, I did a year of therapeutic training Hmm. uh, in a program in existential phenomenological psychotherapy at Seattle University. And, And one reason I didn't finish that was because in doing our sort of practice therapy with each other, I couldn't get over that temptation to tell the person what's yeah. wrong with them. Yeah. You know, like it was obvious, you know, you got to stop doing this and start doing that. But that just doesn't work. And right. um, I didn't really have the patience to take the time that it can take to bring the person around to the answers coming from them.
3: mm Mm-hmm. Hmm yeah and interestingly so if we're talking about an existentialist model so they actually don't subscribe to mental illness per se in the way that let's say the apa would subscribe to it so again you know now kind of hearkening back to the free will, uh, debate or, or not debate, but whatever sort of conversation that we were having, essentially existentialists would say like, these labels are not a helpful at all. We should just kind of get rid of them altogether, but, you know, but now if we're looking at it from a deterministic slash free will perspective, now you would say, well, I mean, then, you know, is there really something that's holding the person back? Because if we're not applying these labels to these people, then I guess everybody's kind of free to do what we want. And, you know, kind of seems like we're sort of back to where we started and not really knowing.
2: Yeah. I mean, I do believe that we're always free to make choices and that's what our brains evolved to do. And again, the problem is, is that we may not make good choices and we might have to do some work before we can get to the point where we're making good choices.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. And what I love about your model is it seems that you know it really explains what we all at least subjectively know to be true. So I got to say, even though obviously I am more of a determinist, I would say I'm more of a compatibilist, even though it's kind of hard to work out what that even really means. Uh, but I am more of a determinist. But I also have to say that in terms of the way your understanding or, your, again, your model explains the world, it fits exactly the experiences that we have as opposed to determinism. It sort of denies them, right? So, I mean, there's no really going around that to say, like, there's this kind of mechanism beneath us or, you know, beneath like the kind of mental capacities that we have. And that mechanism is essentially controlling us. That's certainly not the feeling that we get. So, uh, I really do appreciate that about it is that, again, it takes the data at surface value and it says, well, yes, these are the explanations. They're, it's what you actually feel is true. It's not anything, or at least it doesn't seem like it's anything else. And I really do love that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But, plus, uh really identifying with that determinist perspective can be a sort of a depressing worldview, uh, mm-hmm. sort of. It depends. It depends but like I said, I, I don't
3: necessarily agree with that. I, I think determinism can take in again, the self-actualizing drive
1: as well. I know just in mass. I yeah. don't know when, when, uh, of course. Okay. Individ- yeah. Of course for you, that's fine. Yeah. But I just, I, I could see a lot of uh, issues if, if many people believe that there's gotta be a, a bunch of them that just, you know, Feel like they're at the uh, effect of everything as opposed to yeah. at the cause. Yeah. Actually, I, I go ahead, Ken.
2: I, I can yeah. have a response
1: on to that
3: too. Go yeah,
2: ahead. yeah. Um, so there's a different branch of SDT that focuses on um, free will versus determinism relevant personality traits. And so there's the, the autonomy orientation, the control orientation, and the uh, impersonal orientation. It's called. Mm-hmm. And the basic finding is that people who have an autonomy orientation, which is Uh, They're looking for ways to exercise choice, ways to to do what they want. Uh, They are the mentally healthiest by far. The people who have a controlled orientation, they're looking for the reward structure in the situation and trying to figure out how to get the goodies. You know, they're going to do what they have to do. They're doing okay mental health wise, but not great. People who have a um, impersonal orientation, it's kind of like helplessness. They don't really think that they can cause anything. And they look terrible in terms of mental health. And mm-hmm. in the book, I talk about, well, this is a practical reason to question determinism, because people who believe in it, um, they really do not look so good, at least from the perspective of SDT. Um, and and so from my point of view, they are failing to recognize how free they actually are. And they're stuck in a set of beliefs that are making them miserable because it's thwarting their basic need for autonomy.
3: Hmm. And so uh, wait, were you going to say something? No, just kind of. I just
1: love it. I'm sorry. I'm wait, just having it. so much fun.
3: Okay. If you had to think, right. So if you can use determinism in a positive way in therapy, what do you think that way could be?
1: If you had to guess.
2: Um, Determinism
1: in a positive way.
3: I don't don't see see any positive way. Okay, okay, I got you guys. Okay, so imagine this, right? So you have a person who's like, let's say going through an episodic uh let's say depression, right? So they come into treatment and they say, Hey, you know, like so this is like my normal character structure, right? So we have a sort of personality assessment, right? And then the person says, You know, I'm feeling really anxious because I'm super afraid that I'm not gonna be okay. So this is kind of where catastrophizing, and just to use some CBT terms here. So this is where catastrophizing comes in, right? So the person says, You know, I have X deadlines and uh, like I just I don't think that I'll be able to make them, right? Uh I just I, I feel like like you know I'm kind of sluggish these days you know I have brain fog etc right so then we would look at the personality and we would say and you definitely would get this because obviously you're a personality psychologist so we would say okay based on your personality structure you're right you're highly neurotic you're highly ambitious right so you value and crave success and you're terrified of failure right and you have this history of succeeding over and over again so you have this history of crime. by the way I have plenty of patients like this so you have you have this history of telling yourself oh my god I'm freaking out I'm never going to get this done and then Every single time, not only do you get it done, but you don't actually procrastinate. And then on top of that, you actually thrive, right? So one kid comes to mind. So one of my uh one of my patients, he every single time he has a test, he's like, dude, I'm gonna blow it. It fucking sucks. Oh my God. He's like, I'm not gonna be able to study. I'm not gonna have enough time. Yada yada. And I'm like, dude, you're like at the top of your class every single time. And so I'm like, if we're looking at it from a deterministic model, I'm like, the prediction here is that you're going to do the same thing you always do. You're going to freak out. You're going to tell yourself you're not going to be able to do well. You're going to catastrophize. You're going to tell yourself you're going to fail the class. Then you're going to get kicked out of school. Your dad's going to hate you. Your mom's going to be mad at you, whatever. And then you're probably going to get a hundred on the test. Right? So what the deterministic model will tell me is that like, all of this is in some ways, I mean, maybe inevitable, but also a waste of time. Like we can go through this and I can help soothe you now, but I promise you based on every that you're known to do you are likely to succeed in the next endeavor because of the past and what the past tells you
2: yeah well what you're Mm -hmm. describing is called defensive pessimism Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a pretty prominent style for high achievers you know they think everything's going to go wrong and so that's what motivates them to make sure it doesn't and i think that is a workable way to live Um, you know, it's it's functional, it's adaptive, they're high achieving, but they're not as happy as they could be. And that's why they're in therapy with you. And so I would think your role as a therapist would help them to be to help them to realize that they don't have to go through this process, maybe they can find a healthier way to motivate themselves that doesn't involve all this catastrophization. And if they can't find that maybe they can accept being worried all the time, even though there's no real reason for them to be.
3: Yeah. And then, so I would say that the way that I would use a deterministic model in that respect is I would say like, Hey, this is inevitable. Like you succeeding, you doing well, you probably being at the top of your class and maybe it's not inevitable, but there's a high likelihood or a high probability. So the way I kind of look at it is that like, yes, there's okay. So with him, he's terrified of uncertainty. He hates that. He hates the fact that like, you know, any test can be the one that like sort of snowballs into just complete failure. Mm -hmm. And so what I try to do is I use that deterministic model and I say, but no, man, based on everything that you do and everything that in some way. As you are, or at least most of what you are. I'm like, how likely is it that you're not gonna freak out and you're not gonna study? Like you're pretty much gonna overstudy. Um, you're not gonna overprepare, right? How likely is it that you're not that you're gonna actually fail and that you're not gonna do as well as you, you know, you probably will do? Um, and you know, he always tells me, he said, Yeah, I know that's the past, but you know, the future is so uncertain. So I try to kind of reel him back in with determinism by saying, like, no man, I actually think in this case your success is pretty inevitable. So I mean, at least that's been helpful for us. Yeah.
1: So just <laughs> but essentially, he's just aware of that process and that he'll be successful no matter what. Mm-hmm. And then, That's what, what I try what, to. Does that does that? Help him? <laughs> no, not really.
3: So I mean, I think I mean, it helps him you- a little bit. Let's say if I had to quantify, right? So let's say if we're looking at the catastrophic thinking, and let's say the, again CBT terms, right? So the catastrophic thinking, let's say, is uh, his anxiety is at a ninety, right? And the thought is, oh my god, I'm gonna flunk out, I'm gonna fail, whatever. And then let's say if we, if the, and if I use that deterministic model, we can take that thinking and the anxiety from a ninety, and we can maybe bring it down to like if we're lucky, a seventy-five. Which honestly, man, I'm like, hey, it works. It's good enough for me. But I'm just saying that's sure. one way the determinism can actually work at least yeah. to benefit the patient.
2: Well, from my point of view, that's getting them to buy into something that's not true, mm. because I'm not a determinist. here, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and, and it's this sort of funny way to twist their problem into a, an asset. And I can't help but think it might be better for them if they just kind of saw the whole thing a little differently. But you know, again, I'm not a therapist, so I can't say for sure.
3: But I'm actually curious, well, what would your perspective be? What, what do you think would be more helpful? So even if you aren't a therapist, I mean, you know, yeah. you're still a thinker and a person.
2: Well, I, I would, I, I could certainly imagine using something like, you, you're having this maladaptive thought, you think that you're going to fail, but the evidence shows us you're not. So that's not really, a, you know, a true thought. Um, so you know, CBT, you're questioning the thought, but I don't think you need to go so far as to say, yes, you're determined, you're, you know, your thought is correct. And so that's why you don't have to worry. I mean, really what you're trying to get them to is a place where they're not bound by those kinds of thoughts anymore, instead of just agreeing with you that, well, maybe there's not a big of a problem as I think. Mm-hmm. It would be better if they could get rid of them altogether. And you're trying to help them cope. And it, what you're saying I think could be effective. But um, I'm not sure that that's going to result in them thriving to the extent that they potentially could.
3: Mm-hmm. And so your assessment would essentially be that that should then be founded on the concept of free will.
2: I would say it should be founded on the concept of discovering what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you don't have to have free will therapy. You don't have to convince your clients that free will is real because that's a tough sell. Yeah. And I'm, I know I'm not going to convince a lot of people in my book, and I don't try that hard I, I lay out some reasons for uh, reasonable doubt yes but then i try to move beyond that to the question of okay what do we actually uh seem to be doing in our in the choices that we're making and how can we make better choices
0: mm-hmm. right. yeah
2: and just just
1: just to quickly add no, to th- thought th- i had uh yeah. i i found that certain things that sometimes you could say to people um if, if they really resonate with them there there are sometimes certain pieces of information or understandings that can really motivate them to change or see things differently. Like, for example, this might not be, this is definitely not for everyone. I found this in my own experience. When, when I first found out about like, well, let's say the Eastern philosophical, you know, sort of uh definition of uh, ego, right? It's like, you're identified with your, uh, this, it's like a false self. It's not who you really are. The thoughts that you're having, they're not really your thoughts. It, they're sort of just, kind of happening and then you choose to identify with them and that sort of may uh, make you identify with them and then lead to maybe uh, beliefs that can potentially be also while on one hand could be helpful could be harmful and then maybe adding one extra layer to that which is like any of not any but many of the bad things that ever happen in your life or any misunderstandings or uh anger or anything like these these sort of toxic sort of emotions that or beliefs that you might have subscribed to could are are like uh 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 it's basically caused by the ego at least that's like something that i've heard one time uh there's other things i've learned of course but i found that so appealing that it actually radically changed how i saw things and then the actions that i took moving forward from there and i feel like there's certain things you could say to people along those lines that might work for them and kind of fit like a sort of like a puzzle piece or maybe something else you have to say that could actually help them to change for the better right like detachment right you're saying detaching yourself from it that yeah that's that's one aspect detachment yeah sure mm-hmm. yeah uh, th- at least for example if i if i know oh uh, these thoughts that i would be so I would think it's true, or I'm thinking them, or this this is uh, something that I have to believe because I keep compulsively thinking it. Right. Uh, when I saw that I didn't have to, that actually radically changed how I saw things. Self-determination it, theory in action. <clears throat>
2: yeah, yeah uh, I think that's a great example. I, I would put it this way, that um, we have self-concepts and our self-concepts sometimes hold us back. Uh, ego is a little bit of a loaded term. You know, I know that it's important in Buddhist philosophy, and I think there's a lot to be said for for that philosophical perspective. but um i'm I'm not here to tell you that the ego or that the conscious mind is our 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 enemy. Um, oh, I th- for sure. yeah, I'm trying to uh, say, you know, there's this tendency to to say it's it's all the ego and and uh, that's our problem. i I think our problem is, maladaptive self-concepts that need to be questioned and changed and i think that it takes a, a conscious process to do that mm-hmm. um yes yeah, so that sums it up pretty well i guess yeah hopefully I,
0: I, 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 absolutely absolutely
3: well and then just yeah. curious right so would you say essentially i mean maybe this is like a reductionist kind of way of thinking about it but you would you essentially say that free will is sort of what danny kahneman would call system two thinking
2: Yeah, I do talk about that in the book, that um, System 2 is the part of us that can ask questions um, and can make decisions. And the the weird thing about System 2 is that it's somewhat cut off from its own sources. And so we can be out of touch with ourselves. And that's a big part of what therapy is trying to help us uh, in the Rogerian perspective to, to get over, is to gain a more firm grounding in who we really are. and stop chasing illusions um so i don't know if that answers your question but uh that's that's how i look at it yeah
3: yeah i love it it's sort of like that critical part of us that sort of wants to develop it's essentially allowing it to flourish
2: yeah and so system two is is the problem solving executive part of our minds and it can be operating with the wrong information. We can be out of touch with ourselves. You know, there's a lot of motivation research on this that we might think that we're a high achiever. But if you look at our uh, non-conscious motivation as measured by like the TAT test, um, Mm -hmm. really, we're not achievers. We just got this achiever self-concept along the way somewhere. And maybe we need to uh, question it and, um, you know, move beyond it. And so that's that's a big part of the book is that it's hard to make good decisions because we're stuck in this conscious bubble that can be out of touch with what's going on at a deeper level of ourselves. And in that case, we need to start asking the right questions so that we can uh, reestablish contact with ourselves.
3: I love it. Such a great endpoint point too. All right. So epic, epic ride. Uh, Alan, final questions before we wrap up?
1: Yes. Uh, so if we wanted to follow you, Follow your work. And of course, buy the book, uh, where can we do that?
2: Well, the book is available on Amazon and uh, you can find it other places as well. Uh, following me, that's a little trickier because honestly, I haven't really bothered to try to, you know, be a public intellectual, whatever you mm. want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've just been doing my work, which I like. Um, so, I have posted a couple of blogs in the last two months on psychology today on the free will question. Mm -hmm. So you can uh, look those up and get some more information there. Otherwise just doing a web search on my, my work, you could, you know, find any one of my 300 plus articles and check them out.
3: Awesome. Ken. Thank you so much, man. Such an epic journey. This is awesome. I think
2: one of my favorite. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Definitely top three.
2: And uh, I'm sure that now I've convinced you right, Leon.
3: Yeah, oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm throwing out <laughs> all of my Sam Harris. <laughs>
2: all right, then. thank you so much again, man. Have a good day. Yeah, great talking. Bye-bye. All right, you too. talk thank to you, you soon. You.
1: All right. I wasn't kidding. That is actually, that was incredible, yeah. So, so uh, everyone, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter, where Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on YouTube. YouTube. And thank you again so much for watching and see you next time.